Welcome everyone to another episode of In a Nutshell, the podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry. My name is Joseph Murphy, and today we are joined by Mark Jetve, CFO and Deputy Chairman of the Management Board of Novatech, Russia's largest independent gas producer and its biggest LNG exporter. We will be discussing Novatech's business plans, particularly in the decarbonization arena. Glad to have you with us, Mark. Thank you very much, Joseph. It's great to be here today. Uh, so to start off, um, could you just walk us through Novatech's initiatives um, aimed at you know, decarbonizing, decarbonizing its production, uh, but also potentially exporting some, some green products like hydrogen? Yeah, it's, um, it's something that we have thought about quite extensively and we actually outlined in our in our strategy in 2017 that we believe our pathway forward to decarbonizing society is to increase our share of natural gas in the marketplace. And that was our LNG platform. Um, but as time progressed, we start seeing you know, other steps that we can do in our operations that we feel that we can lower our carbon footprint even further, although we believe we, we are one of the lowest GHG emission companies in the world already. And, and we believe that we can take certain steps um, such as add in wind to the power grid, uh, mm -hmm. hydrogen fuel mix into the turbines, compressors, et cetera, you know, continue with some of our solar work in terms of the telemetric meter for our, for our, our uh, pipeline in, in, in infrastructure pipeline. And so, mm -hmm. We're doing various things today. We're, um, CCS is a perfect example, like we're working on at Umal LNG. And so I, th I think as we look today, many of these things and many of the MOUs that we recently signed with the likes of Baker Hughes, Siemens, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Fordham, even internally inside of Russia, working with you know, uh, MLMK, Seversol, because we believe if we help them, that reduces our scope three. So when we approach this process, we look at, you know, both scope one, scope two, excuse me, and scope three. Obviously, scope three being the hardest because it's a, you know, it's a combustion side that we don't control. But if we can work with our client base to understand how best to decarbonize their business, I, I think we can contribute. So some of the things that we're working on right now that has, I guess, recently seen in the press, uh, although... You know, some of the things that we see is is purely speculative at this point, because mm -hmm. until such time as we formally complete a study of it, you know, uh, of, of a situation like, for, the, for example, you see probably recently we, there was a discussion about us adding wind power. And so mm -hmm. let's, you know, we, let's talk about that for a second, because that seems to be the latest news that I see in the marketplace. Um, you know, it's something that that we need to to look at it from a wind map perspective. So I think the first thing that we're going to have to do in terms of understanding whether or not this is a viable, economically feasible project for us to do is understand the wind flows in the Arctic Circle. And so mm -hmm. that would be the first process. And, and I think that will go on for a study, will go on for a period of time, and then we'll make the decision. Uh, the, other, the other thing that we've been working on, as I mentioned before, is that Umal LNG is considered using uh, a, a carbon capture and storage at its facility. So mm -hmm. over the last year, 18 months, um, we took a, a project to understand how we can inject where's the, where's the subsurfaces in this particular facility that, 
around where we can inject carbon. Um, the problem that we have with this process, so we, we identified subsurfaces, we identified the number of injector wells that we have. The problem we have, there's no legal basis inside of Russia to do this yet. So we have to get through the regulatory process. So I think I think in the CCS project for Yamal, uh, we're anticipating probably taking a, a decision, a FID decision sometime in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones, like I said, working with Baker Hughes on a hydrogen uh, blend mix, we feel that, you know, some of the things that, you know, that we made a recent announcement, for example, we made a recent announcement that we're going to change, possibly change our Opsky project to a gas chemistry project. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we look at that particular project as an example, it's mostly ammonia based is that was, that's the idea. So we, cause today we look at hydrogen, although with all its discussions, we still think it's, you know, it's a, uh, uh, technically challenging, uh, to, to move product around. Uh, so the infrastructure needs to be built out. Um, so the plant that we're looking at is possibly, and we're going to go into a, a pre-feed study as we speak, I think probably mm. in the next two or three months, we'll probably make an announcement on selecting, you know, contractors to work on this, on the study. Mm. But the idea is possibly to produce ammonia because we see ammonia as a viable transport product that's needed around the world. Hydrogen would probably be only a small part of the output. And that output probably be, be used internally. So probably not something mm -hmm. to sell. So the clean product that we would look at will, will most likely be either methanol or, or ammonia. Mm -hmm. So, so you'll be on the initiatives right now. I see, very interesting. So you'll be exporting the, the methanol and ammonia um, and in likelihood, the hydrogen would be used by yourself, perhaps in power generation. Um, so, I mean, the original plan for, for this OBSC project was mm -hmm. to produce, uh, I think it was roughly around 5 million tons per year of LNG. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you hadn't quite settled on a number um, beforehand, but what is the rationale of switching that project from, from 5 million tons of LNG to, to methanol to, to ammonia? Well, I, I, it's not it's it's not decided 100% yet if we're going to shift uh -huh. it completely. Okay, so okay. what we're looking at is, you know, the optionality, giving us that optionality to be able to go in and decide whether or not we feel that given what the market may require certain regions of the world require cleaner fuels, we might have the opportunity to convert a LNG project that was originally estimated to be, like you said correctly, about 5 million tons. It was two trains at two and a half million tons each into mm -hmm. a gas chemistry project. But but we haven't made the decision yet to, to scrap the LNG because we actually may even do an LNG, but maybe not to the same size. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I think there's still time. And that's why you know we, we, we spent a lot of time this past year on the feed work for the LNG. Now we're gonna go into a, a pre-feed study for the gas chemistry process. Mm -hmm. Um, and is there any any uh, discussion at Novatech about exporting hydrogen? Um, so I seem to recall there was a, a preliminary deal between Novatech and uh, a German energy company last last year, perhaps Uniper. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, on on creating uh, you know hydrogen supply chain. Um, so is that at all on the agenda? Maybe maybe at a later stage. No, I, I think it's on the agenda, but it, I think the, the question that we have, Joseph, is the idea of understanding, you know, 
the the economics and understanding the 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 infrastructure build out and 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 quite frankly the demand because I I mean at this point right now we don't have a firm picture and I and I think this is just not only at Novatech I think if you had a chance to talk to many of the other IOCs out there in the marketplace mm-hmm. they would pretty much give you the same situation it's it's definitely there we understand the process because you know this year we're going to commission for example we're going to commission at our Usluga complex by the end of this year which we've been building a hydrocracker mm-hmm. unit the hydrocracker unit will have production of hydrogen okay now again is it going to be insufficient quantities to have some small exports I, I'm not sure at this particular time because I think that's a commercial question. Most likely, it would be used domestically, so I, I think this question still remains to be answered. But it's definitely something we're looking at. I mean, there's no question. I think the industry is looking at this pretty closely. And, but you got to have, you know, I think in a hydrogen question, I think there, you know, you have to look at what clusters you want to de- deliver because I think it's, you know, from a transport, like I said, from a transport perspective, it's quite difficult. At this at this point, and that's why we thought initially that ammonia would be used as a transport, and then you can separate hydrogen out at a later date, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere down the somewhere down the process chain. Uh, but I, I still think everybody is uh, is looking at this from a from a study perspective, and, I, and a decision has not been made at this point. Mm-hmm. I realize uh, it's it's still early days with these these projects, but what sort of uh rate of return on investment do you expect to make from them um so with the ops plan you know that's 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 exporting a product ammonia uh, methanol um but with the carbon capture um and you know using hydrogen potentially as or or, or wind to as power generation uh, mm-hmm. at yamal lng it's also you also have to consider the ad- added benefit of your you're going to be selling cleaner lng which which potentially could could fetch a premium on the market. Um, I don't know. I, I, we have a lot of we have a lot of debates about this, Joseph, on with the concept of green LNG. Mm-hmm. And, and and my my take on this whole situation is that you know look at we had ten cargos roughly that were sold that were basically certified as green. You know maybe mm-hmm. some of them got premiums, some of them didn't. You know I, I don't know the the economics and the commercial rationale from these buyer sellers. Um, but in our position, you know, as somebody who wants to grow their LNG business to up to 70 million tons by the end of this decade, I mean, I think there's going to be steps that we're going to need to make as a company to further decarbonize our business process. So there's going to be investments that we're going to have to make that are going to be just requisite investments, necessary investments that is going to be required just to sell LNG. So I think when we look at this concept of green LNG, I think that's going to go away and all LNG in the future will have some elements of this concept of green, but you won't use that moniker green anymore because all LNG would be green. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think, I think it's, I think it's just going to be driven by the marketplace. And, and, and a lot of times what we face from a, from a commercial side and questions that often get asked is, you know, we're a supplier of hydrocarbons, right? In this case, natural gas. We have customers. We really have to listen to what the customer wants. And in this regard, whether you talk about term, tenor, you know, uh, destination or FOB, pricing uh, structures, you know, you're, you're essentially looking at the customer and working with them. Now, they're getting pressure also on the downstream side 
on the combustion side. So, you know, the question you have to you have to understand from this perspective is when we look at the greening of LNG, the problem is, is if we look at the, you know, the upstream process inside, we might be talking maybe 20% of the actual emissions, 80% being on the combustion side. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's really an important step for the buyers to, to ensure that they're delivering green, you know, clean LNG into their markets because they're all, like I said, they're getting pressure from their, their customers. They're getting pressure from their governments. So I, I think this whole idea about a premium market, you know, is going to go away. I, I just think it's not, it's not something that we're going to look at in the future. And this question that we're talking about now, because obviously it's, it's a new developing concept, will be mm-hmm. one that we won't really talk about in the future because all LNG would be green. I see. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned uh, Novatech's plan to, to ramp up uh, production of LNG to up to 70 million tons mm-hmm. per year uh, by 2030. Um, as you're well aware, the, the IA recently made waves in the industry by um, advising that in a scenario where the world meets its net zero target, no more investment uh, in oil and gas is needed beyond already developed uh, approved projects. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your view on that? that recommendation well i mean i have stated many many times already that novatech's pathway forward to decarbonization is to sell more gas not less mm-hmm. so so i don't consider natural gas to be a transition fuel or a bridge fuel i consider it to be an integral part of the future energy mix and we don't see any destructions in terms of where gas will fit in the future energy. We still think it's going to be somewhere in the 23 to 26 to 28% of the total primary energy source. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what happened in in my view, in my case, when I look at what happened a couple of weeks ago when the IA came out with their net zero emissions 250 roadmap, you know, I I think what they did, they basically published like the worst case scenarios, fear mongering narratives. And Mm -hmm. that's what the media picked up. I mean, that's exactly what the media wanted to hear. And I think they did more, you know, injustice to reality because it's not reality. It's not reality we're talking about here. There's just mm-hmm. no way that we can we can continue with a growth of two billion people by 2050, more than double on the economic activity, and think that we're gonna go into society where electrification is gonna be 90% renewables. I mean, mm-hmm. the IA. What that you know? What, what we really should be talking about is that there's different regions in the world that have different economic development points, right? So if the IEA is basically a EU think tank kind of concept run by you know the EU, which is part of this green movement, that has a completely different economic growth path than China or India or Africa. And you know when we look at the the amount of you know, the population growth, and we see that out of that 2 billion population growth, about 90% is going to be urbanization. Urbanization is going to imply more energy because you got to build steel, concretes, roads, et cetera. And I I just think to raise the standard of living and and increase, you know, economic prosperity, you're going to need energy. And and like I said, and, and we believe that the pathway forward in part of this de- decarbonization. It's not the only pathway. See, this is where the, where the debate needs to be a honest debate because mm-hmm. we believe natural gas is just one element of 
decarbonization. So that's one element of this energy transition from coal to natural gas, as an example. Part of it's going to be renewables where you can use it. Part of it will be hydrogen, as we talked about earlier. But to say that no new investments are needed post 2021, you're going to already see by, by the end of this year, you'll see all the IOCs, you'll see Novatech, you'll see other Russian oil and gas come, come out with their investment propositions and CapEx programs. And it's just going to mm -hmm. dispel this as being totally ridiculous comment that they made. Mm -hmm. So is net zero by 2050 a realistic goal? Is it a practical practical goal? Is it is it a goal that we should be striving for? Well, I, I think so. I, I mean, I think I think the energy industry uh, needs to focus on issues of methane, you know, emissions. I, you know, I think uh, you know, I think that was something that is more practical. See, I think I think the issue, Joseph, is when you take CO two and you focus only on CO two as one element in a multivariant ecosystem of which climate change, mm -hmm. I, I just think you're not really painting a realistic perspective of what needs to be done to address this question on, on, on you know, uh, carbon emissions, net zero. Because I think what you really need to do also in the same light is if you want to make this comment and you want to reach that goal, you really have to come out to society and say, your economic standard of living is gonna have to change. You know, you no longer can, you know, fly to these places that you want to go. You, you know, you no longer can drive these places that you want to drive to. And, and so it's, it's going to take a whole societal change. And that's why I said this 2080 split before between what the energy oil and gas industry is doing. But the other thing, too, is I think that's often mis misunderstood, Joseph. The oil and gas industry in total is basically making significant investments. So if you look at the whole picture on this whole decarbonization process, even the shift into green energy. It's the oil and gas industry that are making probably the most significant portion of that investment into transitioning away from traditional dirtier fossil fuels into what people perceive to be cleaner fuels. Now, mm -hmm. you know, when I look at companies like Novatech, as an example, uh, and I look at the, you know, sort of the historical evolution of the oil and gas industry as a, as a, as a, as a uh, discussion point or as an analog, you know, we look at a position and say the IOCs were primarily oil companies with a big refining and marketing on. That was your Shells, BPs, Exxon's, mobile, you know, mobile before the merger, Texaco, Chevron, you know, all they, they were basically big oil companies with a downstream market and their downstream refining led into their petrol retail stations, which was really their interface with society, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, it was the purvey of the inter independent groups that really were searching for natural gas. So then we started seeing over time a change where we started seeing IOCs make acquisitions. You know, when the shield revolution started in the United States, we saw Exxon make the big acquisition of XTO, Shell made the BG acquisition, and but yet, they're still not at a position yet where they're basically at a mix in their product mix that is more gas weighted. No, Total mm -hmm. bought their investment into Novatech, et cetera. And now we're seeing a further shift down the chain where these IOCs are going into wind, solar, you know, biofuels, et cetera. And where are we at Novatech? We're 85% gas. 
All right. Whether you look at our production profile, you're looking at our resource base. So for us to make a dramatic shift to move away from what we do best, you know, it's, it's, it's just not realistic from a, from an operational perspective. So we continue to go down that path that we believe our contribution will be through natural gas. We can't make a shift. And if we could, Mark, if we could just um, now dive into uh, Novatech's general business. Um, mm -hmm. So one of your projects underway now uh, is the fourth train of Yamal LNG. Um, mm -hmm. So how is the progress going commissioning that facility? Um, it's also a very significant project, uh, even despite its small size, because of course it's showcasing Arctic Cascade, uh, mm -hmm. Novatech's own liquefaction technology. Um, how is how is Arctic Cascade performing, and is Novatech developing any other technologies to reduce reliance on on non-Russian um, models? Well, I, I think for your audience would be a first interesting point is that our construction yard, our LNG construction yard in Murmansk is the only large-scale facility dedicated 100% to LNG projects. So we were able at a very early stage to go out and bring contractors in and work with them to develop technologies and, and equipment that, that's domestically made for future LNG projects. So, so what Arctic, what Arctic Cascade is, it's essentially, it's a technology, as you rightly said, developed by some of our engineers internally. Um, and what it does, it uses a different process based on the ambient temperature in, in the Arctic zone. So it, mm -hmm. it's not a complex multi-fluid cascade. It, it basically uses nitrogen, et cetera, as one of the cooling uh, ingredients. And so what we have to do right now, we have to, to get to see how effective it is. You know, we need time because we need to go through the whole seasons. You know, mm -hmm. We need to see how it operates in the winter months, when, when, it, when it's warmer, how does it operate, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of premature at this stage. It's commissioned already. It's producing. And mm -hmm. it, what we need to do is just make sure that we have 12 to 18 months of operational experience because there's obviously going to be tweaks that are mm -hmm. going to be made to, to the structure based on what we learn through this, say, 12 to 18 months experience through parts of the parts of the climatic changes and the seasonal mm -hmm. changes. So I think it's a little premature to give you an exact answer how it's operating performances until we get to okay. data points. And I, like I said, and I think I think some of the things that we've already done already is by working with Russian enterprises, we've been able to develop, I mean, already we're using a cryogenic, the first time a cryogenic pump has been made inside of Russia, and we're using it on our Yamal project already. Mm -hmm. So so that technology is is driven from the, from the process of consolidating and trying to, you know, make some domestic uh, uh, investments so that we can build up a domestic business. And, and this is what's going to be like, uh, people ask me a lot of times, Joseph, do I feel there's a risk with, uh, you know, Gazprom or Rosneft or somebody else making the decision going to LNG? The answer is no, because the more projects we have, the more opportunity we get to develop the indigenous domestic uh, operations and production facilities. So actually, we welcome that kind of that kind of investments. Mm -hmm. And um so Yamal LNG, your flagship project, um, already at full capacity for, for some years now. Um, 
your next project, Arctic LNG2, even larger by a few million tons per year, uh, well on the way, um, due online in 2023. Um, then further ahead, the other two big projects you have are Arctic LNG1 and Arctic LNG3. Um, where are those projects at right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, just a little word on Yamal first. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's it's um, produced over 70, 700 cargo, excuse me. It's, it was the fastest project to reach 500 cargos globally for large scale, and it's been a huge success. It's been operating, say, uh, more than a, about 110% plus of its nameplate capacity. So in essence, it's actually producing about 2 million tons more on an annualized basis than its nameplate capacity. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a, a, a huge success, not only for Novatech, uh, but for our partners. And as a result of that, we then now can see, you know, what we can do actually in the Arctic, Arctic zone. So we now at Arctic LNG2, we're at the construction side of Arctic LNG2 right now. So we're expect to launch the first train in 2023. We're about, Fifth, roughly about fifty percent done with a with the process for train number train number one. About forty percent overall project. Um, we we're drilling about on an average quarterly basis. We're drilling about six wells production wells each quarter. Mm -hmm. So we were uh, uh, more than forty percent, I think, believe done already for the for the number of wells that needed to be filled in for for this particular first train. Um, just, I think it was last week, we, we, uh, we announced that the first flight into the airport um, was, was landed from, uh, mm -hmm. from Tumen to Utrene Field. So that will facilitate, again, the delivery of equipment, et cetera, to the particular plant. And so, you know, this is, this is you know, going along according to plan. That's why we actually, we, we stepped up the third train from 2026 to 2025 based on where we see ourselves today. Right. But I, I but I also want to just say before we get into uh, Arctic one and three, one of the things that we did, as, as, as you may know, we moved and changed the concept completely different. So Yamal LNG was built on 38,000 pilings. So everything was above the permafrost. What we decided to do with, with uh, Arctic LNG two and beyond is we are building these gravity based structures. And that's what we're building inside of our Marmans facility. Uh, and we're going to, I think it's like 14 modules that are being fabricated as we speak today in China that basically come in and they fit onto the, onto the platform, which is this concrete based barge. And uh, what that does, each barge, there'll be three trains, there's 6.6 .6 million tons per annum. And what that did is each train reduced our environmental footprint on the Arctic zone by, up, it's about a quarter of the size. So we significantly reduced our footprint and this issue of permafrost, you know, question by by doing this GBS. So where we are on Arctic Arctic uh, LNG one, Arctic LNG one is basically in the exploration phase. We we've been we've been spending probably the last year and a half extensively uh, doing exploration work. Uh, this year um, we're expected to drill and test about 13 additional exploration wells, as well as run about 2,600 kilometers of 3D seismic, get that mm -hmm. process. Because in our estimation, in order to be able to go out and determine the size and scale of these projects, and in order to, for us to go out and farm out these particular projects to our partner base, 
is we need to first understand what the resource base looks like, how much production, size, and we will only do that until, until we're comfortable to understand in the geologies and production profile, then we'll go out and talk to the market. That, that, that project, Arctic LNG-1, again, similar size, about 19.8, three trains at 6.6, .6, is expected to be um, 26, 27, you know, period of time when we start to the end of the decade. Now, mm -hmm. Arctic LNG-3, the one that you alluded before, is in really early stage exploration. That project won't start until post 20, 2030, um, but we have done exploration work on it already. We, we actually drilled a first well in 2018. Um, it's, it's, in, it's, it's not on the, it's in the bay and in, in, uh, in uh, shallow waters. And the, the first well that we drilled and tested, uh, DeGoyer McNaughton as, ascribed about 322 billion cubic meters of gas to that particular well so far for the resources mm -hmm. which made it in 2018 i think woodmac listed it as the number one exploration find in the world that that particular year so we, we have exploration activity that we need to do um, and i suspect that will continue over the next year or uh, eight, 12 to 18 months we'll start the second drilling well exploration well in that particular zone Mm -hmm. So yeah, I realize that um, you're still at the exploration uh, phase with both of these projects, but do you have a, a rough target for when you want to take a FID on them? Uh, I, I, I don't think we'll, I mean, definitely three is, is not anywhere near right now. So I would suspect that uh, Arctic LNG 1 will probably be, you know, 23, mm -hmm. probably, you know, in that order of magnitude in terms of timing, mm -hmm. you know, because, because, you know, you got to get the FID and then you got to, if, if we're, if we're, you know, cause you're generally, you're talking about a two, three year construction period now. Right. right sure. and so, yeah. you know, to get this process started, get the partners in, which we, which by the way, we do have strong partner interests already in these mm -hmm. particular projects. And uh, it's just a question, like I said earlier, for us to come up with the expiration results before we go out and farm out these particular projects. So I would suspect 23, 24, the latest would be, I think, for for FID decision on 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 Arctic LNG one. Mm -hmm. And is it uh, Novatech's preference to to create partnerships for for Arctic LNG one, or you know, is there a possibility the company will try and go it alone? No, no, I, I've, I've, you know, it's we're talking about a project in the orders of magnitude of twenty plus billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and so obviously from a risk sharing <laughs> perspective, I think, you know, and what we've seen, you know, in terms of our ability to monetize from Yamal LNG to Arctic LNG to in the uplift in the valuation, I think it justifies mm -hmm. that we try to keep a, maybe a 60-40 split, mm -hmm. you know, as we did in, 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 our, in our first project. So a uh, recent announcement that caught my eye. Um, Novatech is forming a joint venture with Gazpromnef to explore and develop an offshore Arctic block. Um, this seemed like quite a big milestone for me, uh, for the company, um, considering that it, it's mainly stayed onshore with its operations. And, uh, you know, the, the offshore Arctic in Russia has, you know, traditionally be the realm of Gazprom and, and, and Rosneft. Mm -hmm. um, what potential do you see for offshore gas? In Arctic well, I, gas. 
Well, I, you know, I think we got to look at it from the perspective of the Arctic zone in Russia. I mean, if you go back in time and look at what the U.S. Geological Service outlined in terms of its potential, I mean, we're talking about probably 30% of the undiscovered gas reserves in the world are concentrated in this Arctic zone, you know? And so, so you know, I think even, I think Sir Nefty Gas did it well the other day, I think, and, and discovered discovered gas and then and circuit primarily an oil company. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's at a very early stage in the process. We just made the announcement. I think it's, you know, it, it is something different because it moves us out of our core, you know, sort of area of the Amal Gadam Peninsula, yeah. but, you know, but, but it not with our partner. I mean, Gazprom Neft is a big partner with Novatech. I mm -hmm. mean, we do, we do Arctic gas joint venture with them and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a close relationship. We understand their operations and, you know, they understand our operation model. And so we'll, we'll just see, we'll, we'll do this exploration. I mean, right now we're, we're, you know, uncertain of what the results will be, whether oil or gas combination thereof. And so mm -hmm. I think this will be something that we'll talk about a little later once we start the actual work. Okay. And you, you mentioned how this particular project is taking the company out of out of its main theater of operations, you know, Yamal, Jaidan, Peninsulas. Um, would Novatech consider developing liquefaction elsewhere in Russia um, or even overseas? Or, you know, is the main focus just going to be on the Arctic LNG? No, I, I, Joseph, I think what many people don't understand is that Novatech already has worked on a small, medium and large scale projects now. So, you know, our small scale project was launched last year, 40,000 ton facility in Magnitogorsk in the Chelyabinsk region. Mm -hmm. And this is basically used to be able to change transition modal transport from, from petrol to natural gas. And so we're building out a network of retail and fueling stations that take us almost from the St. Petersburg region in the Northwest to the Ural Mountains, and we're trying to concentrate our efforts on being one of the leading suppliers of natural gas to transport fuel mm -hmm. along the main federal highway system, right? So that's a small scale. A couple of years ago, we launched Cryogas Vesosk. It's the only LNG complex in the Baltic Sea region, right? That's, um, that's a project that we're doing right now. It's uh, It was originally looked at uh, taking a consideration of the IS, uh, ISO 2020, uh, I, you know, changes in, in, in fuel, bunker fuel from 3.5 sulfur down to 0.5. And mm -hmm. so when these new IMO regulations came in, you know, we felt that the transition and shipping the Baltic being one that is a green, already green, would, mm -hmm. would, would, would look at this particular project with, with, with excitement. And, and it has. It's now producing... You know, little startup, a little slower startup than we, we normally would like to see. Now we're operating about 100% of its capacity, and it serves, like I said, the Baltic region, and it also feeds in to our stations that we're building in both Poland and, and Germany. And that's another yeah. element of our business. We, you know, last year we opened up our first carbon-neutral LNG fueling station in Rostock in, in Germany, and that, that has been a huge success for us, where we see the average fueling stations inside of you know germany or in europe as a as a general number like like 1000 to 1.5000 tons this is over 3000 so it's been a huge success for us 
as as we see Europe changing its move to say gas, you know, G mobility or clean vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so I think by the end of the year, with the build out we're doing inside of Germany or in Poland, I think we may be the largest supplier of LNG as a modal transport company inside of uh, inside of Germany. And we do that via our 100% owned subsidiary called Novatech Green Energy, which is based in mm -hmm. Poland. So these are little things So we actually see both sides, but to go outside and say, well, we build a facility somewhere else, probably not likely. What we will consider is going downstream investments, such as a gas to power facility. Mm -hmm. so we would look at that as an opportunity to, to enhance the conversion and use of our gas. And one of the things that, uh, we talked about and we're still doing work on right now is the uh, is a project and potential project in Vietnam. You know, we're working with our partners, uh, uh, Total Energies and Siemens, as well mm -hmm. as a local Vietnamese partner to look at this opportunity of converting gas into a power grid inside of Vietnam. Okay, that's interesting. And on the on the topic of uh, marine LNG uh, transport, um, so. Gazprom Neft recent well, Gazprom Neft is looking to launch Russia's first LNG bunkering vessel this year. Um, is that something Novatec might be interested in? Uh, I don't know if we're going to we will look at a bunkering facility itself. I mean, mm -hmm. hopefully, Gazprom Neft buys their their LNG from us for that bunker <laughs> facility would be something that I would expect. Um, no, what, what Novatec's doing is you know we're, we're building out the Northern Sea Route logistical model, mm -hmm. right? And so throughout the, 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 this logistical model, we're building a transshipment complex in Murmansk for westbound shipments, and we're building out the transshipment complex in Kamchatka for mm -hmm. the eastbound transits. And that's going to be generally two, two vessels, you know, um, and that will be used essentially for the, a, a hub base as a transshipment where we'll bring the product from our facilities in Yamal and Gudan to these locations offload it there and then vessels will come up to the transshipment complex and and take cargoes from 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 those particular vessels so that's what we're working on but in, in terms of a pure bunker uh i i don't i have not seen anything that's presented to me yet to to have that as one of the models that we're looking at as a potential investment opportunity okay well it's been a very interesting discussion um before we close things down uh do you have any uh finishing remarks yeah, I, I would just like to say, um, you know, I think there's a lot of misconception about Russia as a, as a country. And I, I saw some comments recently talking about, you know, this concept of greenwashing. And, mm -hmm. and, and what we've done that probably different than the IOCs, as an example, when Novatech in August published our climate and environmental goals, our targets, right, we set it mm -hmm. to 2030. And we set it to 2030 because that is within our strategy period. So we know what we're going to be doing in terms of development opportunities. So now what we need to do is see what else we need to do to meet that goals that we established to 2030. We didn't set aspirational goals. Mm -hmm. So, so, and that's what I think many of these are. Many of these, these 2050 goals are purely aspirational because they don't have a concrete steps in place today to get them. So we'll be held accountable because it's a much shorter period of time. And, and I, and I think, I think there's a mistake that, you know, inside of Russia that, you know, we're not doing anything and that's, and that's, and that's, and that's uh, a false, 
premise because you know the government accepted the uh, climate change Paris climate change in September 2019 they've just outlined you know the LNG strategy you know we outlined uh, things on the government's working on a decarbonization process they're studying you know nature-based sinks with reforestation use of of, of of peat moss you know all that stuff that we can do as as carbon sinks mm-hmm. and and I, and I think I think you know we have to have a little time to develop these things and I, and I think I think the company Novatech the, the 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 goals and targets that we outlined already are already lower than those that some of these other companies are striving for in 2040 and I said mm-hmm. that because before because we're already at a point where we're 85% plus gas. So mm-hmm. we already know, Joseph, in our production of LNG, for example, in 20, 2019, we produced 18.8 million tons of LNG from Yamal. That equated to about a 62 million tons of carbon reduction by switching from coal to gas. And so when we think we can leave up to, up to 70 million tons, if we took at 62 as just a general number, mm-hmm. we can reduce emissions of about 170 million tons of, of carbon from, from switching from coal to gas. So that is one step that one company can make. And I think that's the process that we're working on because we're working on a realistic plan to decarbonize our operations as best we can. But I think our carbon footprint is already one of the lowest and we'll continue working on that. So that's really the last message I want to, I would like to leave. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Um, this has been another episode of In a Nutshell, the podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends for the gas industry. Thank you and see you next time.